Hello, my oral surgery friends. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. In this podcast, you will hear surgeons discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. The goal of this podcast is to evaluate every aspect that a surgeon can improve in order to create a better experience for patients, staff, and the surgeon. Most of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions. The methods discussed are meant to provoke thought and should be supplemented with research into the approved studies prior to making changes to one's way of practice. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Well, welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. This is Dr. Grant Stuckey. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Michael Hahn. He's an oral and maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Hahn, great having you on the episode today. Right. Well, thank you for having me. Yes. I was hoping uh, we could start off by just kind of hearing a little bit of your personal background and your training and kind of what you're currently doing now. Yeah. So um, I'm currently an attending and program director in the University of Illinois Chicago uh, program. So you're alma mater. And uh, going back, I did my dental school in UCLA and did some kind of creepy info gathering. And I looks like we're coming from the same school. That's right. That's awesome. And then I did my residency in University of Seattle and spent a year in Nova Scotia for a fellowship in TMJ and orthognathic surgery. And then in 2016, I joined as faculty at uh, UIC and have been here since then. Excellent. That's great. Are you still sticking with that emphasis? Are most of your cases TMJ, orthognathic, or what are you doing? For the most part, but, you know, whatever comes, just uh, I would say traditional scope, oral surgery. I have a colleague who does the expanded scope and head and neck oncology and reconstruction, but I stick with traditional scope. Okay. And for our listeners, you know, some who are younger who are considering going into academics, how did you make that decision to do that? For me, uh, as much as I'd like to make it sound cool, I can't. It was more of a selfish motivation that had very little to do with teaching. So initially, I, I really wanted to almost practice in a bubble where I somewhat, quote unquote, guaranteed a particular scope. So I wanted to practice the scope that I wanted without any... I guess, uh, outside influence. The surest way was to go into academics. And of course, along the way, I've, uh, there are a lot of things that grew on me. So I'm, I'm really happy with my decision to stay in academics. But I'd be lying to if I told you that I went to academics to be a teacher and, you know, to make a huge impact in the specialty or anything like that. Okay. Well, I'm sure that's a, a side bonus and I'm sure that's what you're doing these days. Cool. I was hoping to talk a little bit about I guess first, you know, what you've learned as an attending in the way of teaching and, you know, working in that role as a, as a teacher, and, but also a surgeon. Uh, like I said, I, I didn't go into academics with, you know, a huge passion for teaching, but I really learned that I did actually, I guess, subconsciously enjoy teaching. And I've been kind of thinking about why. And I think it's because I'm a very average learner and I was a very average uh, resident. So it took a lot of trial and error. And I, I think that's what really allowed me to think about what worked best for me and what didn't work for me. So I kind of uh, tried to apply that, you know, as an attending and kind of seeing how residents respond to that was pretty fun <laughs> and fulfilling as well. Yeah, so that's uh, the one thing that I learned about that I actually did enjoy teaching. And then the other thing was it really made me reflect on myself as a surgeon and as a person. And it, it's been kind of a nice uh, synergistic thing. Nice. So it's certainly very unique to be teaching surgery to other people 
it's not like you're in a classroom where, you know, you're, you're very confined and you know all the results and there's not much risk. I mean, we're talking about you're trusting, you know, a lot of these residents and people with your patients, you know, letting them do things that could potentially impact, you know, yourself and the patient. So how do you balance all that and maintain a good attitude? No one teaches you how to teach and it, it gets even harder if you're in a clinical setting. So all the teaching is in continuation with patient care. So it's not in a lot of certain block of time to teach uh, different subjects. You have to kind of teach things as they come and uh, try to make it as organized as, as possible. I think the fact that no one teaches you how to teach is what makes surgical teaching interesting. I think that kind of gives you the liberty to try whatever you want, right? And in terms of balancing taking care of my own patients and, and letting residents get their surgical experience, that hasn't really been a huge thing for me. I think part of the reason is that uh, I spent a year uh, before uh, starting this position in the fellowship program where I got a heavy volume of stuff to the point where I didn't feel like I need tons more. Got it. And in regards to ways to teach residents that are more or less effective, in the last couple of years, what is, you know, one or two things that you've been like, okay, if I teach them this way, things seem to go better. Or if I do this, they kind of are stifled. I try to make as few assumptions as possible because you probably know yourself, I think there are some variations in what's taught and what's not taught in different dental schools. Yeah. So I try to kind of keep as open mind as possible. And then one thing I really make sure to do is to really tell the residents that, you know, we'll encourage them to ask questions. And I tell them that, you know, attendings are obligated to answer any questions. I mean, that sounds like a really dull statement, but, you know, a lot of things that we do are taught in residency, we're just taught that this is how things are done without much of an explanation. And if you work with attending A who says, you know, X, Y, Z is the way to do this particular procedure, and you go to attending B who tells you, you know, LMN is is the way to do it. A lot of impressionable residents will be very confused and they'll just kind of crumble. That's how I was. So I, I try to make it very clear that, you know, if you have a question, always ask and attendings would and should answer that and, and clarify the question. And understanding that there's many ways to treat the same problem has uh, worked okay for me in terms of uh, teaching residents. That's awesome. I'm sure you've experienced many different types of teachers in your training and you've seen, you know, people who are super trusting and, you know, kind of let the pupil do whatever they want to do and, you know, just sit back and and watch things happen. And then there's others who kind of micromanage and they're very anxious and got to be involved in every little piece because they're not sure, you know, if this is going to derail and they don't want it to derail. Where do you fall on that spectrum? I think I really have elements of both ends of the spectrum. I can't really pigeonhole myself into one particular category, but I... (laughs) hate to admit this, but uh, since taking on the program director position, I'm probably closer to a micromanager. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great question. I've never really thought about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just, I brought that up because you being there at USC reminds me of uh, some of my training. And, you know, I was blessed to have kind of two, in my mind, were two diametrically opposed types of teachers. You know, I had Dr. Maloro who is in some ways 
you know, kind of a trusting step back, you know, let you do what you're going to do. And then he'll comment at the end. And Dr. Kolokithis or Kolokithis was the style of she's going to be there and, and with every step of the way and kind of, you know, walk you through it and tell you what you're doing wrong or, or good. And, and it was great for me to have both styles because they taught me different things. Yeah, no, I think that's that's great too. And I, I, you're probably a you know pretty resilient and adaptive resident. I wasn't, so I didn't respond too well to those two extremes. I kind of struggled to reconcile the two approaches, and I frequently crumbled. <laughs> I, <laughs> I try to remember that experience and try to be as clear to the residents as I can. All right. And then in regards to, I guess, some clinical pearls or things that you've continued learning, what stands out? My preferences in terms of, I guess you can call these uh, clinical pearls. I really like embrasure wires for a lot of stuff. Intra-op MMF for mandible fractures and what have you, I like to do that. I'd never do that for close treatment of the mandible fracture. You know, these embrasure wires are not easy to identify from non-surgeons and almost impossible to cut you know, unless you're surgeon. But, you know, kind of in an office space setting, I actually like to use them to hold down implant guides. Yeah, You know, you can have the most accurate, fully guided implant guide, but if it's not fitting too well, yeah. you know, if it's rocking or if it's cantilevering, it's no longer accurate. But I like to kind of lock that down with an embrasure wire. I guess it kind of looks like a circumendibular wire just around the embrasures. Pretty nice success with that. Oh, very nice. And so are you drilling holes in the guide to pass it through or going around the hole? No, it, yeah, it would just go over the, the guide. The whole guide, okay. Yeah, so. Excellent. Yeah, apical to the guide through the embrasure and then over and on the occlusal surface of the guide. Got it. That's a nice technical note that probably a lot of us forget to use wires. You know, we use them so much in residency. We just kind of space it afterward, but super helpful. Do you have any more pearls that you haven't discussed in previous episodes? Oh, man, I'm full of pearls. I, I don't know if they're pearls to anyone else, but, I, you know, to me, they are. <laughs> Did you pick up a lot of them after training? Because I, I, I can imagine you know, learning a lot of different things after training, you know, you know, work with colleagues from other, you know, backgrounds and programs. Yeah, and that's one reason I started this podcast is because I just love talking to other surgeons and picking their brain and figuring out what they're doing. And so I started thinking, you know, if I'm going to, I'm always calling guys and like, hey, how do you do this and that? And I figured I might as well start recording it and passing it on to other people. Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. Yeah. But no, I mean, I think a lot of them have been discussed on the podcast. You know, as far as different things I do that haven't been mentioned on the podcast, I think one is just being a lot more routine about my sedations. And so, basically do like a timeout at the beginning and my assistants know exactly how it's going to go. Pretty much we always say, okay, we're going to start the procedure after all the questions have been answered, you know, and I, we look at the oxygen. Is the oxygen on? You know, for stuff in the OR and, you know, probably what your bigger surgeries, you don't need to worry about this stuff. But these are the simple things that a lot of the times guys forget to ask and you're halfway through the procedure and you realize, oh, yeah, the, no one turned on the oxygen or they turned it on and the tank is empty, you know, like stupid stuff like that. And so I have this whole routine. Speaking of routine, one thing that I really, you know, emphasize in teaching is do things exactly the same way. Dr. Maloro is, is really big on that, too. But, you know, the more and more 
I teach, the more I recognize the importance of that because, you know, you're building the foundations during residency and you only have a finite amount of cases, right? And if you're, let's say you're doing thirds, yeah, you probably do have the luxury to try a million different ways, but let's say you're doing a mid-face fracture or even a mandible fracture, you're not going to be doing 500 of them, right? So you won't know your preferences until you give, you know, a like a handful of approaches, an honest try. So I generally don't allow significant deviations from our routines to residents, which is kind of the micromanager side of me that I kind of hint at. Yes. <laughs> what other technical tips? I guess a lot of our implants with Nobel, and so I've gotten pretty detailed into the different types of drills and things I use. Yeah, because my pearls on Nobel implants would be, I started doing Nobel from the start and I've placed thousands of them and I kept talking to my friends who were doing Nobel and so many people love the active but my friends kept saying hey I'm, I'm leaving the active because there's too much bone loss at the reverse taper you know because they have that reverse taper design and we keep seeing these patients coming back and the bone is going straight to that end of the reverse taper you know and you lose that top whatever it is like two millimeters and so I talked to the rep and, you know, said, I'm seeing this, you know, it, it seems like something that's worth me leaving the Nobel active for. And, you know, he said, well, before you do that, you know, consider trying the Nobel parallel. And also, did you know that the 5.0 diameter Nobel active has the biggest reverse taper, whereas the 3.5, the 4.3 and the 5.5 all have a much more subtle reverse taper. And so I ended up basically switching. And every time I use a 5.0, I use a, a parallel or sometimes a groovy. And those, you take some work to, to work through because you have to do the screw tap and also this cortical drill up top so that, you know, there's not too much pressure at the platform because those don't have a reverse taper at all. But as soon as I started doing that, I started seeing a whole lot less bone loss when I stopped using those five O's. I should write that down. I don't know. I mean, and Nobel probably wouldn't like to hear that because they'll, you know, they'd say, oh, well, we've engineered it this way. But I keep hearing it from all my friends that when they're using the five O's specifically, they get a ton of dieback down to that reverse taper. And the parallels are just awesome that way. They are a little more technique sensitive. So you have to use that cortical drill and usually the screw tap for the parallel. One thing I've kind of gotten into over the past few years is just kind of in-house rudimentary CAD CAM type of stuff. Okay. With, you know, a freeform software like Mesh Mixer, you know, making some basic you know, guides, whether it's an autonomy guide or an implant guide. And I guess that's the benefit of kind of working in an academic bubble where I can, you know, try things. And yeah, that's something that I kind of enjoy. I mean, I'm limiting this type of stuff to kind of slam dunk cases, right? And slam dunk cases yeah. don't really require a guide to begin with, but it's pretty fun to make a semi-precision guide. Okay. I bought a 3D printer. Our department has one. So trying different versions is, has been pretty fun. And what types of cases are you finding that to be most helpful with? For implants, it's the two, three adjacent teeth. What I do is there's a you know free library of, of tooth STLs, you know, full you know, teeth from one to 32. And you can do yeah. like digital wax ups and, and make guides off that. Nice. For like single tooth uh, missing implants, it's, it's probably worthless. I don't 
need anything, maybe at most a suck down guide, but okay. you know, for cases where you have two, three missing teeth, but you know, not quite complicated enough to warrant maybe thousands of dollars to outsource it. Those are the types of cases that I play around with. Dr. Weisskopf did a great episode on using 3D printers and he's the master of all things technological. And he combines that too with he's the master of finding the cheapest possible way of doing everything in life. I love that. (laughs) I'm a big fan already. Yeah. So he found a way to, you know, buy and use a 3D printer from Amazon that was only 250 bucks. And he has this whole technique that he uses that, you know, I'm starting to get into. But yeah, it seems like a no brainer if you have that set up in your office to do that. I don't know if it, how critical it is for just single implants because he does it for almost every single one. But certainly you're going to get a nice pretty x-ray every time you use those. For all gadget-related stuff, I feel like it all has to fit your practice setting. I'm kind of in this academic bubble. We have department resources. You know, I have my own printer, and I, I guess I have the luxury to try different things you know, without losing too much chair time. But if I'm in a solo practice, for example, then no, I, I, it wouldn't make any sense to do any of it myself, even if it's just for fun. probably makes much more sense to outsource it. So definitely some of these technological gadgets, the value of that's all kind of relative. And then uh, real quick, you mentioned you were doing an OR case earlier that was an infection case, right? Was it a decision drainage? Yeah, it was a juicy one. Nice. (laughs) Has anything changed with your IND techniques over the years or is there anything you've done differently? That's the one thing that's really never changed since my residency. I, I have a quite a, a very low threshold to go through the neck. That's kind of stayed consistent. No changes there. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Luckily, you know, in private practice, we, I don't see too many of that. Those cases, maybe once or twice a year, I have to take one of my patients to the OR to, to do a drainage procedure. But one thing that I learned at UIC that I think a lot of guys didn't, which is probably the opposite of what you're saying, is we did so much through the mouth, you know, and it was always try to do it through the mouth first. And yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of that just depends on kind of where you're trained. Yeah. And not only that, kind of like when we were talking about technology and, you know, 3D printing and things like that, I think that's all relative to your practice setting too. For example, I mean, I have this firm belief that we should all have a low threshold to go through the neck. That probably has something to do with the fact that I work right across the OR. You know, I can just you know, give him a call and it's easy for me to excuse myself from clinic. I can ask my colleague to cover. So it's just much easier for me to do that, right? But if I'm in a sole practice, for example, I mean, I can have the same exact philosophy about how to drain you know, a certain type of abscess. I, I, yeah, I'd probably go intro roll first too. and Try that first, yeah. Any changes or things you've learned with orthognathic surgery? Lucky to be exposed to a lot during residency. And then I went to fellowship. It's a fellowship that was known to do things quite differently. So I wanted to learn different ways. And then when I started here at UIC, that's when I kind of amalgamated, you know, elements of my residency training and and for my fellowship, came up with my own protocol. Since then, I haven't changed too much. A thing that I've adapted over the last couple of years is a K-wire. Before that, I've been using other 
external or internal references for vertical. Yeah. I should say during fellowship and residency, we haven't been doing too much uh, VSP. It was just very select cases that we did VSP on, but now we do VSP for essentially everything. And we have all the software and gadgets to do them in-house. So that's something that I've incorporated to my practice. Nice. And you're happy with the results? It's going well? Yeah, no, it's it's been very fun. What, what I think the in-house capabilities really shine for people who, let's say, they have a, their insurance has an exclusion clause for orthognathic surgery. Yeah. That, they either have to pay out of pocket for you know, hospital fees, which is just astronomical, right? So actually a couple weeks ago, we did a double jaw in our clinic OR, and you probably remember that, uh, OR3. Yes. <laughs> now we have an outside an- mobile anesthesia group that comes in, but we did that. And instead of doing you know, articulator mounted model surgery, we you know, use our in-house capabilities to do VSP and print our splints. So that's been the changes that I've incorporated. Geez, and Lindemann Burr or a recent stuff? <laughs> Am I a Burr guy or a, or a saw guy? <laughs> yeah. I'm a Burr guy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Nothing against saws, but I always be a Burr guy. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Yeah. That's how Dr. Malora raises us over there. I'm Team Lindemann. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's awesome. Well, yeah, so it's so great you guys are able to offer that to patients because that's such a huge factor, of course, with orthognathic surgery is the ability to get it paid for, covered by insurance. I mean, some people are waiting years to try to get it all squared away. So, super helpful. Going back to your role as director and, you know, looking at different residents, we had this discussion a little bit with Dr. Schlevy, but, you know, what is... I guess your advice for dental students who are looking to, I guess, shine and and get into oral surgery programs, you know, what kind of people are you looking for? Well, it's, uh, I'm sure it's the exact same as everywhere else, but, you know, we want the self-starters, you know, self-motivated people, as Dr. Maloro puts it, drivers and not passengers, right? Yes, exactly. Not proud to say this, but I certainly wasn't like that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But now that I'm in this position, I can clearly see why we uh, want uh, self-starters. And in terms of if I were a student, if I were to do this again, I I would really make it a point to let it be known that I want to do oral surgery. Actually, I remember when I uh, was interviewing for residency in Vanderbilt, I made it a point to ask every attending, okay, I want to go into academics. Do you have any pointers for me? Dr. McKenna told me two things. One, find a niche, and two, let it be known that you want to go into academics. I'd give the same advice to students who want to go into oral surgery. Let it be known that you want to go into oral surgery and really explore the specialty as much as you can. And there are a lot of opportunities these days, right? You know, now that a lot of externships are done virtually, you don't even have to you know, pay for a flight to explore certain aspects of a program. Those are my thoughts on those who are interested in the specialty. Yeah. And what to you kind of tips you off to knowing that someone is a driver of the bus and not a passenger? You know, how, how do you distinguish that or recognize it? So far, it hasn't been very subtle. It, it was pretty obvious, either they're self-starters or, or, you know, kind of passengers. There weren't that many in between. Maybe it's just me not picking up the subtleties, but yeah, it, it's been kind of binary so far. 
Yeah, I think it's a unique environment uh, in an oral surgery program, you know, because you have so many type A personalities, you know, probably in any surgery program you're getting, you know. And so I think for me, it was, I, I was naturally a driver, but when I got into residency, I was at first very hesitant, you know, to kind of be aggressive and do my thing because I was like a little intimidated. You know, I'm surrounded by so many strong personalities. And so I had to have a conversation at one point with Dr. Maloro, you know, where he kind of said, hey, you know, don't be afraid to really be a driver. And, you know, it's you're not going to ruffle any feathers. And if you do, you know, too bad for whoever let their feathers get ruffled. You got to really be strong and, and make it known. And, and I wasn't like a duck to water right at first, you know, I kind of had to figure that out because I had never been in that environment where I was surrounded by so many strong personalities. Well, good. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, I think there's a lot of people out there who are considering academics and it's good to hear that you're succeeding and you're enjoying it. The latter is true. The former, I don't know. <laughs> but <yeah>. but <laughs> in all seriousness, though, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been, I mean, definitely my first podcast and it's, it's been very enjoyable. And, you know, like you, I really, really enjoy talking about you know, the technical pearls and just, you know, all aspects of the specialty. So thank you so much for, for having me. Yes, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Cool. Well, let's connect again. Once we learn some more stuff, we'll get back on the mic and discuss it. Thanks so much. All right. Sounds great. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery, Surgeon's Talking Shop. If you are practicing oral surgery or are in the oral surgery field and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or text me at 720-441-6059. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed on this podcast or feedback regarding an episode that was already aired, please do not hesitate to email or call me. Thanks again for listening.